So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look, one of, the, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which you will hear me speak about repeatedly because it's so central to what I believe uh, we ought to be doing in response to the grace of God that's been shown us, we Christians. One of the central passages of Scripture that you'll hear me talk about over and over about is, is in Luke chapter 7. It's actually a story about uh, Jesus having a meal, as he often did with lots of different people. On this particular occasion, there is a Pharisee, a religious leader, who's sitting at the end of the table. His name's Simon. And Simon has orchestrated this wonderful event so that, you know, some of the good religious juju that Jesus has is going to rub off on him, and everyone's going to think more highly of Simon because they'll say, well, who did you have over for lunch today? I had Jesus. And so Simon is thinking this is going to be a really great networking opportunity and a play way for me to increase my name in the community. And so he invites Jesus and some of his followers over. And then the craziest thing happened. These, these events back in those days were all male affairs, right? A bunch of guys sitting around a table because they were the only important people, apparently. So they were all sitting around this table or reclining, as they used to do, on some cushions. And Simon is at the end of the table, <clears throat> kind of, you know, surmising what's, what, what's going on around him. And in breaks this woman. Not just any woman. She was a well-known woman in the community, hair flowing everywhere, which in those days was a sign of looseness. So she runs in. She's crying. She's a mess. She's got perfume that she uses for her, her particular work in the evenings. She pours it out on Jesus' feet, and she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And her tears are mingling together with the perfume. You can imagine sitting there, this kind of shameful event, at least in their eyes, taking place. Even in our day, people would be like, whoa, what's, go what's going on here? Well, Jesus, looking at this woman, realizes that at the end of the table, Simon's also looking, but in a disapproving fashion. In fact, Simon's thinking to himself, man, if this Jesus were a true prophet, he would know who it is that's touching him right now. And he would do what true prophets, true godly men do, and that is shun her. Don't, you, don't, you don't have women of the night touching you in any fashion at all if you want to be taken seriously in the religious circles. Jesus, knowing this man is thinking these things, he, he says out loud, Simon, I've got a question for you. What is it, teacher? There were two men, or one man who had two men who owed him lots of money. One of those men owed him $5 million, and the other one owed him $5. He forgave the debt of both of them. Which one of those two men, said Jesus, do you think will love the one who forgave the debt more? Well, Simon's not an idiot. Well, of course, the one, who had, the one who had the greater debt. Right, Simon, that's exactly right. So here's the thing. You've sat over at the end of the table here, and you're making judgments about this woman who is responding rightfully to me. Why is she responding rightfully to me? Because she's had a massive debt forgiven. She knows who she is. She knows that she falls short. She knows that she is a mess and so she is lavishing on me worship that you have not given 
because you think you're the $5 guy. He who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. Or in other words, radical grace yields radical responses. The reason I love this story is because if there's one thing that I want to convince you of in my entire ministry is that you, Christian, have been graced on such a profound level that your worship should match it. That's what Romans 12 is about. Paul has finished the first whole part of Romans, 1 through 11, trying to describe for you how grand the grace of God is. And he reached, we should have stopped the sermon series there, at verse 36 of Romans 11. It's a doxology. It's like a benediction. It should have been done. But I don't want to leave you thinking there's no response that you and I are supposed to give. I don't want you to wait till next year. What do we do now? In light of the grace of God, how then shall we live? Well, this passage is going to describe just two, just two verses. And in it, we're going to learn, number one, that you should surrender yourself to God. What should you, first response is to surrender yourself to God. And then second, what, what does that surrender look like? I've got two things. It's a three-point sermon, right? I hit it in two because I'm sneaky like that. So look, <laughs> surrender yourself to God and, and, then, and then two th- ways that that surrender shows itself, okay? Here's the first. Surrender yourself to God. How should we respond To the radical grace of God, you surrender yourself to God. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You might hear my voice being a little gravelly today. It's because my son was in a volleyball tournament uh, yesterday, and I have a hard time withholding my opinions at the volleyball tournament, uh, both about the play of the kids and a number of other factors going on in the game. Uh, And so my daughter has just, my daughter knows this about me. She's nine years old now. She's gotten involved in playing some soccer. I'm not able to go to a lot of the games, but... When I did go to one of the games recently, it was on Saturday, and, uh, and I was walking in, holding her hand, and she, she turned, she stopped me in the middle, and she kind of like pulled me aside like we were going to have this private little conversation. I was like, oh, I'm being confronted, <laughs> right? And, and, she, and she pulled me aside and said, Dad, um, you can cheer, but you need to do it quietly. <laughs> oh, what? Why? What? Well, Dad, you sometimes are on the side and you're like yelling so much at at the players, like in a good way. (laughs) But I don't, I get embarrassed if you're going to do that to me. So like, okay, so I'm standing on the sideline going. (laughs) (laughs) Making as many hand signals as I can. I have a habit, in other words, of urging, that's the right word, in a passionate kind of way, what I want to see, this is what the word means here in Greek, that's what it means. It's, it's, this, it's this passionate plea, right? Get the, get the ball back on defense. You know, it's that, 
it's that urge. So Paul is, he wants you to say, listen, I'm urging you. Plea, I'm pleading with you. Some translations, I beseech you, therefore. To what? Well, first, before I get to what, Paul says, I want, in light of the mercies of God. So I'm, I'm pleading with you first, first to think about the mercies of God. What mercies? Okay, ver- chapters 1 through 11. You and everybody else on the planet were, were objects of the wrath of God because of our disobedience to him. We have broken his moral law. I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your sexual orientation is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care any. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore deserve rightly the justice of God to be displayed against them in his wrath. He is angry toward the world and people who have broken his moral commands. They've broken his world. But God, the very God who is angry with the sinner took his own son and sacrificed his son in the place of those sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. And now, by faith, not by your background, not by your birthright, not by any works that you do, by faith alone, you can have eternal life with God. It, all it requires is an expression of your will in response to him. I am a sinner and I need a savior. That's it. And this God then will keep you all your days. He's, he, he has a covenant love for you. He makes a promise to you that no matter what happens, he will bless you here and in the life to come forever and ever. That's what's happened to you, Christian. The mercies of God have been lavished on you. There is a great Old Testament story that I, whenever I think about the mercy of God, I, and I just like people say, oh, God, give me a good picture. So there's this guy named Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 9. You might not know this guy's name. He's not a well-known story. I've talked about it several times, though. Mephibosheth was uh, the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul the king. So if you're you're doing the kingly line, you've got Saul, Jonathan, Mephibosheth. The problem is that God had come in and said, no, no, David is going to be the new king. David and Jonathan were buddies. Saul and Jonathan die in battle. David comes into the kingdom. The way it worked in those days, if you were the new king and there was any other rivals to the throne, you had one job to do. What do you think it was? Eliminate, trump the rivals. Sorry, that was a bad joke, right? <laughs> Eliminate them. Get rid of them. So, the expectation is that when David comes to the kingdom and comes to the palace, he's going to just clean house in the physical sense. He's going to kill him. Well, the nursemaid, Mephibosheth is just a, just a little guy. The nursemaid knows this, and so she picks up Mephibosheth, hearing that David's coming, and, and, and Saul and Jonathan have died, and she's running out the door, and she drops him. And he breaks his leg, and they don't ever get it fixed. So this guy's got a limp the rest of his life. And they run. They run as far away as they can go. They lo- load a bar 
This sounds forever away, like Winnipeg. I mean, he's just forever away in the middle of nowhere, low to bar. <laughs> Sorry, Winnipeg. <laughs> okay. So he, they're off in the middle of nowhere, and rightly so, because if David finds out about it, they're thinking, you know what, he's going to come out and he's going to try to kill this guy because Mephibosheth might grow up one day and might claim the throne, lead people into battle against David. Well, years go by. Mephibosheth just living out in the middle of nowhere. And David, what he doesn't know is that David decides that he is going to go and find Mephibosheth to show him kindness for the sake of his friend Jonathan. So David sends out the king's guard and they find Mephibosheth out in Lodabar. I mean, the whole king's guard goes out there knocks on Mephibosheth's door and there's Mephibosheth like shaking in his boots because what does he think is going to happen? This is what he's been avoiding his entire life. The king's guard's there. They're going to take him to the palace. You can imagine that ride in the, in the chariot maybe. Talk about, talking about a dead man walking. He shows up at the palace limping and dragging himself forward to present himself before the king on his throne. The first words out of the Mephibosheth's mouth are, what would you want with a dead dog like me? Like, I get it, David. I, des I, deserve, I deserve death. And David the king in this moment stops and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You got the wrong idea. I actually called you here so that I could show you kindness. that I could give you the grace of the king. In fact, what I want to do is I want to restore all your land and property to you, and then I want you to come and eat at my table every day like one of my sons. Isn't that a great picture? Essentially, the, Mephibosheth, every evening, what, at six o'clock, he shows up at the table, you know, with dragging his broken leg, limping, while all David's kids are all bouncing around, and they're all sitting there ready to eat the turkey or whatever it is, and they sit down, and the tablecloth of this table covers this man's legs, and he sits there knowing he deserves none of it. And, that, and that's you and me. For centuries, we will eat at the king's table as one of his sons and daughters, knowing full well that we never deserved to be there. In light of the mercy of God, I urge you to what? Uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So that language is supposed to draw your attention back to the Old Testament where uh, they used to offer burnt offerings. So if you went to the temple and you wanted to have your sins atoned for, you would offer a burnt offering. Uh, the idea of a burnt offering is that they would burn the entire thing up a bird or something like that, you put it on the altar and it's all gone. That sacrifice was all gone. The idea behind this is, Paul's like, I want you to be that sacrifice, but the difference between the burnt offering that's completely burned up and you is that you stay alive. 
Every part of you, every ounce of your energy, how do you respond to the radical grace of God with a radical response as a living sacrifice? You say, well, okay, but what is that practically? What does that look like? Okay, I'll, I'll give you another passage of Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, you get in this story about Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees a vision of the Lord. I'll just read you this passage. It's really rich. Isaiah 6, he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Back in those days, the longer your, your robe, the train of your robe, the more important you were. Sometimes if you see the, the weddings of princesses and things like that, they have these enormous long trains. It's supposed to show historically a kind of honor. Like the more important you are, the longer the train. This one, God's train fills the whole temple. It just keeps going. Like, in other words, when you get to heaven, you're just going to be, you know, in cotton or whatever. Like, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, verse 2, were seraphim. These are angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. They don't dare to look upon the holy God. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So this is a song that they sing to each other over and over and over. You think our songs are repetitive, right? They just do this one forever. Why? Because no matter how many times you call God holy, it's not enough. Augustine said, nothing we say about you is enough about you. So these angels are repeating this song. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Absolute fear is overcoming this man at this moment. Woe to me, he says. I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If, you're just, if you've read this passage before, one of the questions that immediately comes out is why is this man identifying his lips as the problem? But you think about the picture here. So, so Isaiah is seeing the Lord lifted up. He, he sees the majesty of God and he sees these angels singing. Words are being expressed about the holiness of God and he wants to join in. But he realizes that if he joins in, those words have to cross over some lips, don't they? And those lips are not worthy of carrying words about this God. I, live, I'm, I'm, I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean, unclean lips and I see the Lord Almighty. Then verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's a complete act of grace. You don't deserve to talk about God, man, but I'm gonna make it so you can. Now, what do you expect the first words to be that come out of this man's mouth? Holy, holy, holy. You, you expect him to sing. Notice what he does. Verse eight, then I heard the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. The first words out of this man's, the first words of worship out of the mouth of this man are a complete commitment of his life. 
What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? There it is. In light of the grace of God, right? Sin being atoned for, lips being touched. It's not just a song, folks. That's not, that's, that is a response, but that's not, it's not just talk. It is all of me. Point the way, Lord, and I will go that, that way. Tim Keller, he, he said it this way, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of life and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of life. It's basically for you to say, God, here I am, hands wide open. Lord, what you want to do with me is what you want to do with me. I have been bought with a price. You know, I find a lot of Christians, not with hands open, but like fists clenched. Why are you doing this in my life, God? Why are you calling me to this particular way of living? That's not a living sacrifice. That's not a response to the grace of God. The response is hands open, willing to receive what it is he has. Here I am. Send me. Now that, that's, I hope, a helpful picture, but more specifically, what does that mean in the practical, everyday stuff of life that you and I face? So like I said, uh, surrender yourself to God is his main point. But then he gives some practical outworkings of that. Two, in fact. What, is, what does surrender look like? Verse two. Notice that there's two commands here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You saw the two commands, right? They're juxtaposed. They're put next to each other. Don't, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your own. I want to take those in turn. Do not conform to the pattern of this. Now, the original language here says age, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the Apostle Paul has a way of viewing the world that, that you need to be led into, Okay? Uh, all of history in his mind, if you read the Apostle Paul in lots of different places, can be summarized in this, in this chart. And I'm going to now draw on the flip, the flip chart. <laughs> oh, great flip chart. Okay. So, history, Paul says, can be, can, can be uh, put into two categories. There, there is... The, the present age. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, he calls that the present evil age. So the present age for Paul is, is the world in which we currently inhabit. It is uh, governed by the, what he calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is a work in the sons of disobedience. It's Ephesians 2. It's the present world system that tends to want to push us into its mold. You have the present evil age, but he says there's a new age that's dawned. And he calls it the age to come. 
In fact, Paul will say several places, the present evil age is coming to an end and the, and the age to come has been inaugurated, begun. When? Well, you can probably guess in Paul's mind, it was at, at Christ's coming. And when will the present evil age end? Well, that's when Christ returns. So what about now? Well, this is the challenge with being a Christian in the, in, in the present evil age, but being citizens of the age to come. You, you live, as theologians say, in the overlap of the ages. So why is it that you continue sinning even though you've been freed from sin? Well, because you've got a couple of different forces at play here, don't you? And you live in a society that is repeatedly telling you a particular way to live and this is the good life and all that sort of thing and that you have God who is the king of the age to come. His kingdom is calling on you and saying, no, no, this is the future. This is the way you should view things. We, we struggle as Christians in between the ages. We're citizens of another kingdom, but we, but we live in this one. And, and we tend, let's be honest, we tend to fit in to where we live. When I, so I, when I moved here, back here from New Zealand, seven years in New Zealand, and I moved back here, I could not believe how much people made fun of the way I talked and dressed. Uh, the way I talked, I remember saying, as I do still, time to time, uh, rubbish, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, that's the, the wrath of God, things like that. People would say, it's, it's trash, idiot, right? It's not rubbish, right? Cast off the queen. Anyway, rubbish, <laughs> trash, whatever. Um, I remember specifically when I came back. So in New Zealand, when I left, they used to call, wear, men used to wear what was called three-quarter pants, which are like capris, right? So when, when I came here, it was in the summertime, and I was wearing like pants that came down to my calves. And those are considered kind of a cool pair of shorts, in New Zealand, and I, people were coming up to me and saying, <laughs> nice man, please. <laughs> like, what the? What, what, okay, why was this normal for me? I, I, well, because I lived in New Zealand. Everybody was doing it, man, in New Zealand. I know it was a bad idea, but everybody was doing it. We, te we tend to fit in to those locations where we, where we live. And those locations tend to form us and, and mold the way that we think about the world, sometimes in good ways, but oftentimes in very bad ways, like, like man priests, right? Like, so in the Bible, you, you get examples of this sometimes. So uh, Lot, Abraham's buddy, goes and he lives in this town called Sodom and Gomorrah that end, is, is completely sexually against God. And God's going to judge the city, and he sends two angels to Lot to warn him. Angels show up, knock on the door. Lot says, oh, hello, come in quickly, come in quickly. Why? Well, because the men of the city. And then he pulls the guys in, shuts the door, and immediately, bam, 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 the men of the city have come along and say, you need to send those two visitors out so that we can do with, we, do with them what we want. Like, what kind of town is this? And Lot righteous Lot. Because he's lived in Sodom and Gomorrah for so long, says, you can't have these men, but here are my daughters. What? Like that's, 
that like takes redneck to another level. And here's, so wait, what's going on with Lot? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah is going on with Lot. Where we live tends to get inside of us and it tends to determine for us what kind of ethics that we're supposed to hold. We hear the messages over and over again, right? You get this in the letter to the book, to the Corinthians, to the, and, and, and the, the Corinthians are told repeatedly, uh, you know, like you guys need to stop having your divisions because in Corinth they believed that they could have their superstar preachers and superstar whatever. And they would put the pictures of their favorite preachers on the wall. So they'd say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. It doesn't... And everybody was having divisions. Why? Well, because that's the way they did it in Corinth. Corinth gets inside of you if you live there. So the question that you and I have to ask is, okay, when we read something like this and we say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, you have to say, well, what, what, in what ways does living in 21st century Canada influence the way that we Live, there's a lot, but let me give you two, two easy ones. Well, one is, is, our, is the way we use our money, and we think, we think about our money. I mean, what, what is the pattern of this age in regards to the way we use our money? Well, um, it, can, it can be summarized by a get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. I had, a, I had a friend when I was in, in uh, elementary school. He lived in this very lovely house. I used to love going over there because the, he had a waterbed, and that was just awesome. Right? It was the 80s. Come on. We did crazy things. So go to his house. He had a poster on his wall, and on the wall, he's, I mean, we were in elementary school. His parents had bought him this poster, and on this poster was a picture of like a, a huge house on a hill overlooking an ocean, and there was a garage, a five-car garage down the hill from the house with a trail going up to it. And in each one of the spots in the five-car garage were different cars, right? Like a, like a Maserati and a Lamborghini and a Ferrari, you know, and a Mercedes and a Toyota Corolla, right? <laughs> and on the, on the pit poster, it said, Justification for Higher Education. So, so here, here are we, these elementary school students being told every day, every night before he goes to bed, he looks up on the wall and he says, the goal of my life is to get higher education so that I can have a five-car garage and a house that overlooks the ocean. And that's the good life. Not to share necessarily, not to, but to accumulate as much as I possibly can, pleasure myself as much as I possibly can with my money. He who dies with the most toys wins. So that's the, that's the pattern of this age. But yet you come to the scriptures and you say to yourself, okay, so what is the pattern of the age to come when it comes to money? Well, the answer is that you're a conduit of the grace of God. Money should be passing through you to others, but you don't need to be lined with gold. John Piper says copper will do. Paul writes it really clearly. He says, uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, that those, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. See, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly. You really want to live? Invest yourself in the only age that's going to last. You want to be on the right side of history? Don't invest yourself in the age that's passing away, the present evil age. Invest yourself in the age to come. Another one, money's easy. So, so is the way we, we talk about and think about sex in our world. I mean, the, the, the pattern of this age when it comes to sex, sexual ethics is basically do whatever you want as long as, as it's consensual. And we can argue about what consensual means. But the, don't let anybody form your sexuality. Don't let anybody tell you to use it in any way that is against the way you feel in the present moment, the way that you're going to have a good life is for you to pursue whatever it is you feel. And yet you have the pattern of the age to come. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your body. First Thessalonians 4, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. See, they're following the pattern of the age that's passing away, but you are citizens of a different kingdom. So form your life around that kingdom and, and that age. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. So my wife, before she was my wife, uh, wasn't even my girlfriend yet. Um, there was a dude who lived on our, my dorm floor named Mark who was cut. <laughs> like he was huge, right? He'd go to the gym like every morning for three hours. He was enormous. He was one of these guys who walks around with his shirt off all the time. I'd say, dude, do you have, do you have a shirt? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Come on, man, knock it off. You're just making the rest of us feel awful. He's huge, dude. Black hair. He did a lot of modeling, right? So I found out that this girl, Jeannie, who I was really fond of, was, was dating him for a little bit, which of course made sense. She's beautiful and he's the model. I was like, yeah, okay. Anyway, one, one day he was walking down the hall with his shirt off, right? And I, because I was kind of interested in Jeannie, I would occasionally check in with him. So how, how, are, things, um, how are things going with uh, Jeannie, you know? They're over, man. Really? I mean, that's, uh, that's too bad, right? <laughs> what, uh, what happened? She says my faith isn't deep enough. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll talk to you in a minute. Seriously, I, I ran past him down three flights of stairs where she lived, went to the door of her room, right? She opens it up. She's just looking at me like, and you are? And I said, listen, I got to tell you something, girl. You dumping that dude is the most, because he's not a deep man of faith, is so amazing. I mean, I tend to be a little deeper. I just want that to be on record. <laughs> and so I, I'm standing in a room, and there's this awkward silence like, th thanks? <laughs> uh, so uh, that's... Um, that's all I really came to, to say. Um, I guess I'll, I mean, I'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> I left. What the? Went back upstairs and I said, to, I, said, I said to Mark, dude, you need to tell me more what's going on here. And he said to me, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. She's, she's just weird. Right. People who, people who 
curb their lives, people who order their lives around the age to come in the present evil age will be thought of as weird. If the age to come defines who you date, defines how you spend your money, defines how you use your sex, defines all the things about you, here am I, send me. If it defines everything about you, people are going to think, man, you're just weird. Are you weird? Oh, come on now, are you weird? I hope so, brothers and sisters. I I hope we are. I hope we're a little bit weird. So do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed. You're going to have to listen quicker than what you're doing here, okay? So, so be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you remember um, that show, uh, Extreme Makeover? Home Edition? Yes? Okay, some of you will remember this. It was about 10, 15 years ago. Like, your guys, all your wives made you watch it. It's <laughs> so great. I love it so much. And it was about this house and this family who had horrible stories. And then they were going to come in and they were going to renew the house and get their new cars and oftentimes just knock the house down and put it back up. And they put a bus in front of it while the family went to, went to Disneyland and came back. And they put the family behind it and the dude with the spiky hair, which was never in style, by the way. Like, it was always like, yeah, dude, move that bus. And they move the bus away. And there's this new house completely transformed. From what it was, this dump, to this magnificent palace. Yeah, that's what the Lord is doing in the lives of people who are his own. He is, he is taking the mess, the squalor, and he's transforming it into a palace, a, a work of art. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How? How is he doing it? By the renewing of your mind. Well, why does my mind need to be renewed? Look at Romans 1, verse 28. When Paul began this whole discussion. He said in Romans 1, 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So what is the description of everybody who is apart from Christ? What is the problem? They don't want to honor God, and so God hands them over to their own will, which leads to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. So the depravity of their thinking leads to a depravity in their living. What kind of depravity of living? Well, he lists them, man. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil, disobey their parents. You get the idea. So a depraved mind leads to unrighteous actions. So how is God going to fix the unrighteous actions in your life? Well, he's going to go to the mind. You need a renewal of your mind. You, You need to love what God loves See things God's way. And that will lead to holiness of life. That's what Paul's saying here. So, so God's purpose in your life and my life is to renew our, our minds so that it yields good fruit. And our job is to let him. You notice the tense of the verb, right? It's, it Be transformed. It's a, 
Paul does not say, go transform your mind. No, be transformed. Allow the Lord to do this. Yes, open hands. So pastorally, let me finish all this just by giving you a couple of ways I think that can happen. Uh, First, if you want God to transform your mind, um, I think you need to first, if you want to allow him to do so, like I think you need to admit that you're currently broken. I had a friend when I was in high school. Uh, we used to drive around the Seattle area. He had a, a VW Bug that had no floor in the passenger seat where, where I would sit, that when you sat in it, you'd have to put your feet on the dash and the road would just go below you really fast. <laughs> Car had no heat and it rarely started unless it was rolling. And about 20 minutes into riding in it, like the second time, I said, dude, you got, this car is a mess. It's such a dump. It's horrible. You got to get it fixed. Ain't nothing wrong with this car, man. Right? I think that there are a lot of people, even Christians who claim that. Nothing wrong with this car, man. Nothing wrong with this life. The way I'm doing things is really awesome. Really? Because I can see on the outside is a hole in the floor and you can't get going unless you're rolling. That you, you need to be willing to acknowledge that things aren't going great when you're in charge. If you're willing to let the Lord transform you. So first, admit you're currently broken. Second, you then need to frequent places where fixing happens. You need to be in locations where you can hear about the age to come. You imagine my, my friend, um, if he said to me, uh, yeah, I agree, the car is busted, and so I'm going to bring it over to your house later, and, we'll, and, and you can fix it. He would have come over later, and I would have been like, uh, I mean, it looks like a car. And the engine, I guess, looks like an engine. I wouldn't know. I have, I'm the wrong person to bring this to. My house is, is a bad location for fixing of cars. You do bring it to a mechanic. Listen, if you really want your life to be transformed, man, you've got to make a priority of the local church. You have to. Because every day of your life, you're being bombarded with message after message after message while you watch the football game this afternoon. You will be bombarded with messages of what the good life looks like. And I get like 42 minutes to tell you otherwise every week. We, we are an embassy of the kingdom of God. We are an embassy of the age to come in the present evil age. So you've got to come. You've got to hear. I'm going to pump your tires up, try to fix the floor. And then you go back out and share the message with people. And you come back because you don't come back. I'm telling you, your mind is going to go back into that depraved state. I promise you. Give me a chance. Give us a chance to be God's instrument of grace in your life, leading you to think about the, the age to come. My, um, I was at American Thanksgiving this last week. I'll finish with this. Um, my brother-in-law put his arm around me. And after, because I'd been there for a few, few minutes, and he said to me, you're sounding really Canadian these days. <laughs> I was like, what? How? I don't know, man. Every time you walk by me, you're saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. Like... <laughs> About, about everything. I think I heard an oot come out of you just a minute ago, right? And you, you're generally more polite than you've been. And I was like, huh, 
I guess living among, I guess living among them has, has transformed me. Right, right. Time spent with the right kinds of settings and the right kinds of people will transform you. I promise you that. Invest yourself in the church and the word of God. Have your hands open to the Lord and you will see. So therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the, God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for this text and for, well, the book of Romans as a whole, and I pray that you'd reorient our minds around who you are and the way you think that we might bear fruit for God. Yeah, you're the author of history, Father, and you, by definition, are on the right side of it. So, Father, help us to invest ourselves in the kingdom that will last forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.